today, John Hutchison is the field director for Frontline Missions International. Uh, some of you might be familiar with Frontline. Uh, they're the ones that have put out the uh, video series, Dispatches from the Front. Um, many of you have seen those and become acquainted with uh, their mission organization through that. They are also um, the mission agency for our missionaries, the farmers, who are serving uh, amongst a, an unreached people group in Indonesia. Some of you got an update on their ministry uh, in, in Sunday school. So John Hutchison has been uh, work with missions for many years. Well, I, you know the details better than I, so uh, if you uh, wouldn't mind updating us on those things. But uh, he has been a part, um, uh, connected with our church since even before the farmers became missionaries. Uh, there was a connection, and uh, he's, I think he's the third time coming here. So we've been greatly blessed, and we're super eager to have him uh, come this year and, and are grateful to have him, and you will be encouraged by what he has uh, to share with us this morning. So um, let's prepare our hearts as we uh, begin to receive your word. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Joseph, and it's a joy to be back here with you again at Grace and Truth Bible Church. It's been uh, a number of years. Last time I was here, you were in a different location, so I'm excited about what God's prepared for you here. And... Um, Let's see if we can get that. Yeah, there we go. And I may be walking around a little bit to double check what's on the screen so that I'm staying where the screen uh, outline is going. But anyway, I had the privilege of being a pastor in the mountains of North Georgia for 25 years before God called me to Frontline Missions. I've been with Frontline Missions 20 years now. I oversee our ministries in the former Soviet countries. I've been to Ukraine more than 40 times. I've been to Russia 10 times, and then some of the Muslim countries in Central Asia, north of Afghanistan, training underground pastors. And so it's been a wonderful opportunity to uh, help pastors who don't have the resources and the privileges and the benefits we have here in the West to train them and help them learn how to be effective ministers of the gospel. So if you would like to get up-to-date field reports directly from the field, I would encourage you to go to the table in the entryway and sign up for our monthly e-newsletter. It comes out 12 times a year. We just need your name and your phone number, uh, phone number, your name and your email address. And if after a couple of months it's not exactly what you thought it was, you can hit unsubscribe and you're done with it, okay? But this will give you up-to-date field reports directly from the field because we focus on those countries of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia that have least access to the gospel, as you'll see in a map here in just a moment. And so I would encourage you to sign up for that. The videos that Joseph mentioned, dispatches or news reports from the front, uh, God has used those to call people to the mission field. There are 10 country-specific ones. And... Um, they have been effective in churches and families watching them and even small groups, uh, dividing them in half, watching half one week using the study guide questions in the special uh, effects on each disc. And then coming back the next week, watching the second half and answering the questions in the study guide for that. So God has used these powerfully uh, because we're a visual generation. And a lot of people can't go to the mission field. This brings the mission field here. And it has our direct, executive director, Tim Kazee, just writing in his journal and then narrating how he sees the cross 
impacting the world in hard places. And Jesus building His church in communist, Muslim, and Hindu countries. And He drinks a lot of coffee in the process. So anyway, those uh, there's some books He's written. There are resources there, and I trust you will take advantage of them. But do sign up for the e-newsletter. It comes out monthly. We just need your name and your email address. The farmers are doing a terrific job in Indonesia. Uh, they have to come back to the U.S. briefly this summer, and I don't think they're going to be able to make it out here to the Northwest, but their daughter Zoe has to have further surgery. She was born with only two chambers in her heart, and so like at four weeks, they had to do open-heart surgery and create two more chambers. And as her body grows, she has to have it redone So like she had another surgery when she was 8 or 9, now she's 13 going on 14. She's got to have another surgery as her body grows to redo it again. So uh, God has been very gracious that she's lived this long, looks normal and healthy. So they'll be here briefly in the summertime and then back again to uh, serve the Lord there. So thank you for your prayers and your partnership with them. Let's open our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to be studying, valuing what God values, what God places value on. And uh, I trust you'll find this to be an encouragement to your heart and perhaps a very familiar passage uh, to look at from a, a fresh perspective. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Gracious Father, how we need Your Word. Thank You for the time we've had already in worship and in prayer and in confession and in praise. But how we need Your Word to change our thinking, renew our minds so that we don't lean on our own understanding. Thank You for this church and its heart for global missions. And I pray that as we study this text together this morning, You would encourage our hearts and even challenge us about the fame of Jesus to the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to the matter of the harvest, it's something that God places great value on. The harvest is mentioned three times in this text. It's mentioned in verse number 37, and it's mentioned twice in verse 38. So when it comes to valuing the harvest we have to realize that our natural tendency is to place value on temporal possessions and on things, priorities that you and I can see. We're people of sight. We're visual people. And so we put value on our possessions, on our homes, on our jobs, on our hobbies, on our activities, on our families. We put the value on our bank accounts and on our retirement portfolios, whatever's left in those. We put value on things that we can see that are important to us. And we have it so good here in America, uh, better than the rest of the world. In fact, there was a book written, oh, 10, 15 years ago called The Progress Paradox, how life gets better but people feel worse. 
And it went on to examine all the economic and uh, uh, lifestyle issues that have affected people and how we live better than 99.4%, not of the rest of the world. We live better than 99.4% of everybody who's ever lived throughout recorded human history on planet Earth. For example, because of the benefits of modern medicine, our life expectancy in the last century was almost doubled. The beginning of 1900, average lifespan in America was 47 years of age. Today, it's 77 years of age through eradication of uh, common diseases like smallpox and yellow fever and polio and getting uh, pneumonia under control. As far as economic indicators, um, real per capita income has more than doubled since 1960. The average new American home after World War II was 1,360 square feet. The average new construction home today is like 2,300 square feet. And so, through all of these indicators, you'd think people in America would be the happiest that you'd ever find. And yet the surveys show people that say that they are happy has... um, flat line since the 1950s, and those that say they're real happy have begun to decline, and the incidence of depression have increased. Now, sometimes depression is a result of problems that people have uh, physically, emotionally, hormonally, those kind of things, and they need to be addressed. There's help available for those, sometimes through medication, other times through counseling and people encouraging you from the Scripture about how you're looking at things. But most of the time, the problems with depression stem because people have an inward focus instead of a Godward focus. Joseph prayed a while ago about how we struggle with focusing on self. Self being the king instead of God being the king uh, in our day-to-day think, thinking processes. We have it so good here in America And yet the Scriptures tell us God values the harvest because the harvest involves immortal souls, people that are going to live somewhere forever. And so it should be what you and I value as well. The harvest represents people that God loves and people for whom Jesus died. It represents people whom the Holy Spirit is drawing to Himself. So two metaphors, two word pictures are used in this passage. First, the farm uh, imagery of a harvest. And most of us in urban areas, you live here in Portland, most of us don't have much connection with a farming uh, analogy or word picture. Those that grew up on the farm know what it's like to plant crops, to plow, prepare the soil, till it, plant the seeds, do the uh, weeding, and pray and trust God for a good harvest. For those of us that have grown up in an urban setting, about all we know about a harvest is planting some tomatoes in the backyard. But it was very much an agrarian society in our Lord's day. So he used this metaphor of a harvest. And then he also used a second metaphor regarding a shepherd and his sheep. And so we'll look at this here. So look, please, at what we're thinking in terms of an introduction. God's overarching concern. In other words, this is on what God's thinking is, what his heart is on. All right. Would you notice it? God's overarching concern is his glory and fame among all the nations. God's not just focused on the United States of America. 
There are a lot of people that think God's main focus in the world today is America. No, God's not focused on America. America's not even mentioned in the Bible. God's focused on all the nations. I mean, what is the most common verse in Scripture? God so loved the world. It doesn't say God so loved America. He's focused on the nations. And His glory is the sum total of His character. It's everything about His marvelous omnipotence. He's all-powerful. His omniscience. He knows everything. His uh, grace. His mercy. His, uh, even His wrath. All of God's character, His names, represent who He is and especially identified in Jesus Christ. So He's concerned for His glory among the nations through the spread of His glorious gospel. Notice, it says in verse 35, Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel. God's focused on His glorious gospel. And we sang about it so beautifully a while ago, how God was willing to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, by Jesus being estranged from God. God estranged from God. God the Son separated from God the Father. It was necessary for Him to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus took our death penalty because we've broken God's laws right and left. We've all told lies at one time or another. We've all taken something that didn't belong to us at one time or another. We've all been greedy for things that belong to other people. That's coveting. And that's just three of the Ten Commandments we've broken. And Jesus kept the law perfectly during His earthly existence, during His earthly life. He satisfied the righteousness of His Father both in His life and in His death. And He went to the cross for us. And that happened this week. Some 2,000 years ago. This is Holy Week we're coming into now. We talked about it in Sunday school. Thursday night, he was with his apostles in the upper room. The beautiful teaching in John 13, 14, 15, and 16 to his disciples the last time before he was crucified. And then he went to the cross on what we call Good Friday and was separated from his Father. He did that for you and me. And then... He was gloriously raised. We celebrate next Sunday on Easter Sunday. Jesus is alive. That's His gospel. That's what people need to hear. And so God's focus on the spread of His glorious gospel. And what does that involve? Seeking lost sinners to convert into what? True worshipers. We're not automatically true worshipers of God who worship Him in spirit and in truth. We're naturally born worshiping ourselves. We prioritize ourselves. We love ourselves. We're in love with our feelings. You know what? We don't like to get our feelings hurt. We don't like for people to hurt our feelings. Why? We're in love with our feelings. And we have to be converted so that we love God and are more concerned about His feelings than our feelings. To be converted into true worshipers. And that only takes place through the Gospel. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, the Father is seeking true worshipers. And that's what Global Missions is all about. Sharing the good news of the Gospel, how Jesus came to rescue us so that they can be converted from worshipers of themselves into true worshipers of the triune God. 
So the harvest is what global missions and evangelism is all about. Life's not about me and my personal happiness. It's about Jesus and His gospel. So we're going to look at three greats in this text. First, notice, please, the great harvest. The great harvest. And I want you to see the reality of the harvest in verses 35 and 36. Jesus contacts with the crowds. It says in verse 35, he went through all the cities and villages. Now, this is in Galilee, the northernmost region of Israel. Okay? Notice he didn't skip any towns. He went to all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Because the king was present. Notice Jesus was gospel-focused. That was the most important thing people needed. Now, he did heal them. It says he healed every disease and every affliction because when the king is present, then disease cannot exist in his presence. He makes it go away. So the king was present. He healed every disease and affliction, but their physical needs were not the most important. Their spiritual needs were the most important. It says first he came preaching the gospel. And notice, please, As he's involved with crowds of people, verse 36, he saw the crowds. What did he do? It says he had compassion for them. It's a very interesting word in the original language, splachnizomai. It has the idea of almost a guttural sound, of feeling something in your innermost being. Jesus saw hurting people all around him. And so he's empathizing with it. He's looking. He's seeing. He's feeling with their hurts. You say, well, John, what what were they feeling? Here's the compassion of a caring God, a loving God. You see, we have no claim at all on God because we've sinned and broken His holy laws. We've rebelled against Him. We're rebels by nature. God is motivated by compassion for us. I gave a tract to the young lady at the desk when I was leaving the hotel this morning. I said, here, read this. This tells you how much Jesus loves you and He wants you in His family. Do you know the fastest growing religion in the world, as we're going to see in just a moment, is Islam. But Allah does not tell people, I love you and I want you in my family. Our God does. He's motivated by compassion. And so here's the metaphor, the first metaphor, word picture of shepherd and sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, and He's showing compassion on hurting people. And it says the people were like they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It was like they were fleeced. Because the spiritual leaders of their day, the scribes and the Pharisees, really didn't care for them. They were more like religious policemen checking off boxes to see if they were uh, keeping all the law. They didn't minister to their hurts and their needs. They were horrible spiritual leaders, but guess what? It wasn't just a problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Sin itself is a horrible slave master. Sin promises people, oh, get rid of all the restrictions. Throw off all the restraints. Get rid of all that, those strict uh, values that your parents raised you with. And just do your own thing. Have fun. Feel good. And yet sin doesn't tell you that the after effects are guilt that won't go away. Why do people turn to drugs and alcohol? They're trying to dry out the guilt. It leaves people with emptiness, a void that only Jesus can fill and satisfy. 
And so Jesus saw all these hurting people as he looked around him, these crowds. By the way, when you and I are out in public, whether we're at the mall, whether we're at a grocery store, whether we're at the gas station, we see people all around us. Do you ever look at people with their spiritual eyes like Jesus did? You see, there are people all around us. I watched a couple walk by when we were singing a while ago, just happened to see them walking by and thinking, you know, there are people out there with no shepherd. Why are we here? We have a shepherd, Jesus. But there are people all around us out there who have no shepherd. And they're harassed and helpless. And you see people, do you ever look at them through spiritual eyes? See this gal over here? I wonder if she's ever heard a clear presentation of the gospel. Or you see this guy over here. Does it ever cross your mind to think, I wonder where he's going to spend eternity? Is he going to spend eternity with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth? Or is he going to spend eternity separated from Jesus in the lake of fire? You ever look at people through spiritual eyes that way? Jesus looked at people through spiritual eyes and he was empathizing. He was burdened. He had compassion for hurting people. Let's look at some statistics here that are rather staggering. The world population's growing. It's 7.9 billion. It's approaching 8 billion. It's growing at a quarter of a million people every single day. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. The fastest growing religion is not Christianity, it's Islam. Now that's primarily, uh, as those who study these trends have found out through their uh, birth rate, not because of conversions, okay? But it's growing twice as fast as Christianity, and by 2070, 48 years from now. Now, many of us in here won't be alive 48 years from now, but we got kids and grandkids that will be. Unless Jesus comes back by 2070, Islam will be the largest religion on the planet. Now, they are fervent, realizing they want to establish a worldwide caliphate. At least the more zealous ones of them are. There are 7,000 different language groups on the planet. Less than a third have, I mean, sorry, one third of them do not have even a part of the Bible available in their heart language. A third of the two of the 7,000. And then of Protestant churches in the U.S., there's some 330,000 Protestant churches in the U.S. Less than 10% have any kind of global missions program like you have here at Grace and Truth Bible Church. So, you are to be commended. You're part of the less than 10% of the Protestant churches around the country that have any focus on global missions. So you wonder, with the world's population growing like it is, and then churches in America aren't even keeping up with it as far as trying to reach people with the gospel. And then let's look, please, at the most gospel-destitute nations that have the highest levels of persecution. Here is a map similar to the one we looked at in the Sunday school hour. But this area of the world goes across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. I'm sorry it's a little dark here, but this is North Africa, the Middle East, India, Southeast Asia with Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, and then China and Mongolia, and then uh, North Korea here. Two-thirds of the world's population lives here. Only one-third lives on the rest of the planet that's got more land space, okay? So there's some 70 nations here. Two-thirds of the world lives here. 
And these are the most gospel destitute. They have least access to the gospel. These countries are full of gospel dead zones where there's nobody that knows Jesus. And they're not even targeted by American mission agencies to reach them with the gospel. Gospel dead zones. Islam is strong across North Africa, the Middle East, and into Central Asia. Here's Afghanistan and then the Stan countries here. Hinduism strong in Nepal and India. Buddhism is strong in Southeast Asia. Then non-religious atheism in Communist China, Mongolia, and North Korea there. So, less than 10% of American missionaries go to these countries. Less than 10%. And the governments of these countries are either communist, Hindu, Buddhist, or Muslim. And they don't give visas or permission to American missionaries to come. They block Christian Internet sites because they don't want their people to go to Christian Internet sites and find out about Jesus. And you can go in these countries. You can drive hundreds of miles. Never see a cross. Never see a church. Never see a steeple. You can meet people that have never met a born-again Christian. Never. They've never even seen a Bible. I mean, we got plenty of churches around here. I mean, certain parts of the country have more churches than others, but there's plenty of gospel witness in America, but not in these countries. Because Islam holds strong sway, Hinduism is strong, atheistic communism here, and Buddhism here. Keeping people in darkness, sheep without a shepherd. And our hearts should be stirred as Jesus' heart was stirred. And it's... One of the reasons why this area is so gospel dead, has gospel dead zones is because it's risky to go here. Highest levels of persecution. The worst persecutor of Christians is Afghanistan right here. And it became first this year. For the previous 20 years, the worst persecutor of Christians was North Korea right here for 20 years straight. In North Korea, there's some 50 to 60 to 100,000 Christians in concentration camps in North Korea where Kim Jong-un uses his scientists to experiment on them, much like the Nazis did on the Jews in the death camps in World War II. And so the risk is great to go to these countries because you know you'll be watched. You know that there's the risk of being arrested or deported, kicked out, sent back to your home country. And so for what's happened in a lot of Christian Christianity, Christian circles in America the last 50 to 60 years is to call these closed countries closed to the gospel. But guess what? That's not a Bible term. That's an American construct because in America we're risk averse. We're focused on safety and security. Jesus said in the Great Commission on a mountain in Galilee after His resurrection to His disciples, Go therefore, make disciples of how many countries? You tell me. How many? All. He didn't say just the ones easy to get into. He said all. You know what? Coca-Cola's found out how to get into these countries. Nike's found out how to get into these countries. McDonald's has found out how to get into these countries. Why? To make a buck. Why can't the Lord's people find creative ways to take the good news of Jesus who created them in His image and loves them and wants them in His family? By the way, if there were ever such thing as a closed country, it would have been Israel in the first century because that was a country that hated Jesus. 
The religious establishment hated him. The political establishment, the government hated him and nailed him to a cross. And then his pers- they persecuted his followers by beating him and putting him in jail. And yet, out of that context, the gospel came forth. The church was established all under circumstances we would today call a closed country. So, the gospel's advance involves these present-day realities that these nations have least access to the gospel. Least access. It's not available in many respects. And there are over 4,700 what we call frontier people groups. These are people groups with the same culture, same language, same ethnicity, and they haven't heard of Jesus. And maybe one person, one-tenth of one percent, that's one out of a thousand, gets around a firewall on the Internet, goes to a Christian website, learns of the gospel, repents of their sins, trusts Jesus as a Savior, and guess what? They don't know anybody else that's a believer. Nobody in their family, nobody in their extended family clan, nobody in their village. They haven't seen a Bible except what they might have read on a website. And they're all alone. And they've come to Christ. And these frontier people groups are sheep without a shepherd. They're overlooked by American mission agencies. And as we said, and by the way, this amounts to 20% of the world's population live in a frontier people group, and the need is great. So, what does that mean? With so many people groups and nations that have limited access to the gospel, guess what? We've got to have some new strategies. We can't just keep sending people back to countries where they've heard the gospel. And we've got to embrace risk-taking gospel advance to reach frontier people groups in restricted access nations, or sometimes they're called creative access nations, because it takes creativity to find a way to get into the nations. And it involves risk. What's risk? We talked about this at Sunday school. We know about risk in business, in insurance, in investments. People invest in the stock market. Sometimes they make money. Sometimes they lose their shirt. People take the risk of putting money in a startup business. They expect it to take off and go. And sometimes it does. Other times it goes bust and they lose every nickel they put in it. It was a risk and they knew it. But what about risk for the gospel's sake? Risk is exposure to danger or loss. And we don't think about risk when it comes to the gospel. Because again, we live in a culture that's risk averse, minimizing risk. Jesus took the greatest risk to purchase our redemption when he exposed himself to the danger of the cross. The apostles took great risks to go where they were not invited, not wanted. Acts 14 tells us about Paul going into Lystra. They so hated his message. They, just, they didn't just tell him, no thanks, Paul, we're not interested. They stoned him and dragged him out of town. And God miraculously restored his health. He gets up, and you know what he says? Well, they must not want me in Lystra, so I think I'll go into the next town. No, that's not what he said. The Bible says he went back into the city that rejected him and stoned him. He took a risk to go back to the place where he was stoned. And you know what? We're so conflicted here in America. After 9-11, when we were attacked, the Twin Towers were bombed. The Pentagon was bombed. 
Our young people went down to military recruiting stations, signed up to go fight radical Islam in Afghanistan at great risk to their own lives. They were protecting temporal earthly freedom. And in a lot of cases, we applauded that. And some of them went to Afghanistan and they paid the ultimate price. They came home in a casket and we honored their memories. But now we have Christian young people that want to sign up in the Lord's Army and go to a hard place, to a difficult country where there's great risk, and preach spiritual freedom in Christ. And we say, oh no, that's too risky. We don't think you ought to go there. As I've traveled around the country and helped recruit young people for our interns hard places, I've had young adults married in their 20s, early 30s, saying God's called us to go to a Muslim country And our parents are telling us, no, don't go. It's too risky. Really? Christian parents trying to keep their children, their adult children, from following the will of God? I know how important it is to protect your children. My wife and I have been blessed with nine children, okay? When they were little, we took care of them very carefully. We put those little plugs in the electric outlet so they couldn't stick something in it and get electrocuted. When they were a year old, 18 months, my wife would take them outside to play outside. And there's just something about kids. I don't know what it is, but they've got to grab a handful of dirt and stick it in their mouth and eat some dirt. And she was very careful to make sure they didn't eat any dirt and affect their health adversely. When they were teenagers, we were very careful about who their friends were and all these kinds of things. We protected our kids, but guess what? When they reach majority age, if God places His hand on them to go to a difficult place and take risks for the Gospel's sake, we need to be willing to open our hands and let them go. A lady said to me in Michigan where I was speaking last fall, she said, said, you know, that's really hard to open our hands and give our children to God. I said, well, you know, We say our children, but really they're God's. They belong to Him. He's loaned them to us to train up for His glory. They're not really ours. And you know what she said? Well, I know that in my head, but when you've been living the opposite for 18 years, it's hard to make that adjustment like they're my kids instead of God's kids. So we've got to embrace risk-taking. So the great harvest... What are the restrictions on the harvest? Notice, please, in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Why is there this labor shortage in global missions? Well, why is there a minimal number of laborers, so few that want to be missionaries, so few even believers involved here in America in making disciples, sharing their faith and making disciples? Well, You say, well, I guess it's the hearts. You know, people's hearts are really hardened. They're just not really sensitive to the gospel. That may be true here in America, but it's not true in other places. We saw in Sunday school this morning, an average of 10,000 Chinese people a day are coming to Christ. A day. Not through American missionaries, but through the powerful network of underground churches where their pastors have been willing to go to prison for the gospel's sake. In fact, I asked a Chinese house church leader when I was in China, What do you attribute this amazing growth of the gospel to in your country? It's estimated by 2030, eight years, there'll be more born-again Christians in China than here in the U.S. I said, what do you estimate this growth? What do you you, uh, explain this growth 
of the gospel in your country? And they answered me with one word, persecution. God's using persecution to grow His church in China. These people are coming out of the darkness of communism. They know Marxism doesn't work. They've tried to copy American materialism, and they found out materialism doesn't satisfy the heart's deepest longings. And you know what they're finding out? Only Jesus satisfies. And they're coming to Christ in droves in China because of the power of the gospel. So the problem is not with the hearts. It's not with the power of the gospel. We think, well, you know, maybe the gospel is just not working like it used to. Listen, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. The problem is not with the gospel. It's not with hearts. You say, well, maybe we just don't have enough funds, you know, to send missionaries out. And they have to spend time raising support and going from church to church. We, ju- we just don't have the funding. That's not what Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. The problem is not with the funding. You know why? God's already provided the funding to get the Great Commission fulfilled to the ends of the earth. You say He has? Where? In our pockets. He's just waiting for us to give it. He's the owner. We're just the managers of the funds He entrusts to us. So, as we look at this great harvest, notice the restrictions. Why is the fact of a minimal number of labors? It's a strange paradox. Would you notice this? A strange paradox. You'd think people who had been redeemed by the grace of God, who'd been brought out of the miry clay, as Psalms tells us, and had their feet set on a rock and established their going, He put a new song in their mouths. You'd think... We'd be wanting to shout it from the housetops. What Jesus has done for us. No. You see, we get in a rut, a comfort zone. We get in our comfort zones. And we got people all around us that are neighbors we've known for a long time, coworkers we've worked with on the job, friends we've known since high school. And we've talked to them about sports and the weather and our kids and our grandkids and our jobs and our hobbies. But we haven't talked to them about Jesus. Because there's a risk. You have to step outside your comfort zone and bring up a gospel conversation. And there's the risk. Not of getting arrested or deported or kicked out of the country or physically persecuted. But there is a risk that they might get angry or they might get upset or reject us or they might ask us a question from the Bible we don't know the answer to. So what do we do? We stay inside our comfort zones with our lips zippered shut. And that's why it's a strange paradox. You think people who had been taken out of the miry clay and redeemed by the grace of God would shout it from the housetops. No, but it's not only a strange paradox, it's a serious difficulty because if Jesus gave the Great Commission to angels to take His good news of His fame to all the nations. Guess what? It would already been done. Because the angels do His bidding. Exactly what He tells them to do, they do it. They don't say, well, Lord, we need to pray about that for a little bit. No, the angels do exactly what He says. So, what are, those are, that's the fact of a minimal number of labors. Notice the factors. There are two factors of a minimal number of labors. First, there's a lack of spirit control living right here. If we're not controlled by God's Spirit each day, 
giving Him control of our thoughts and words and actions, then we make self-centered choices instead of God-centered choices. Okay? I kind of like this. My dad was an Air Force chaplain for 35 years, so I grew up in the military. And they talk about in the military reporting for duty. Each day, you report for duty. You know, we need to report to the Holy Spirit for duty each day and ask the Spirit of God to control our thoughts and our words and our actions. And if we're not Spirit-controlled, guess what? We give in to fear where fear controls us instead of the Spirit, Holy Spirit boldness. Or we give in to apathy where it just doesn't matter that there are people without sheep, without shepherds all around us, without the shepherd Jesus. We give in to apathy where we're just not really concerned for people hurting under the slavery of sin. But really, the bottom line of why there are minimal number of labors is a low view of God. I mean, if God's glorified every time He saves a lost sinner and He takes them out of the miry clay and He redeems them and sets their feet on a rock and establishes their going, puts a new song in their mouths, if God's glorified every time He extends mercy to an unbeliever, shouldn't we want to see God glorified as often as possible in the conversion of lost sinners? And so it affects our view of God. So would you notice, please, how this has affected us globally? We have a huge imbalance in Christ's kingdom And I don't know how much of this you can read right here, but more than 95%. Yeah, that's 95% of the graduates of most colleges and seminaries, Bible colleges and seminaries in North America. Here's North America, the U.S. and Canada. More than 95% of the graduates of most colleges and seminaries in North America stay and minister to the 5% of the world who live in these two nations. More than 95% of the graduates. It's almost like we've got a glut of the gospel here in North America. You say, well, I know gospel destitute areas here. There are, but nothing like the rest of the world. When 99% of the unevangelized, that's people who haven't heard the gospel, live outside of the U.S. and Canada. They live in Asia. They live in Latin America. They live in Africa. They live in Europe here or Greenland. 99% of those who've never heard of Jesus live outside of North America and Canada, but we've got 95% of the graduates of Bible colleges and seminaries that are staying right here. And so it's an imbalance. And I think part of the reason for it is in local churches, we've not been holding up before our young people the tremendous privilege of representing the King of Kings by going as His ambassador to one of these nations that needs to hear about Jesus. We've not challenged them to even think about it and pray about it. I said in Sunday school this morning, a lot of young people I talk to say, what are you doing in college? Well, I'm not sure what I'm majoring. What are you going to do after you graduate? Well, I'm just not sure. There's a lot of indecision among young people today. And just to raise the idea before them and say, Hey, would you pray about perhaps an internship where you could go for two months and just see if this is something God might want you to do? Let me tell you something. Jonathan Farmer, that this body partners with and prays for him and his family, he was headed a different direction in college. And his pastor said to him, Hey, would you pray about doing one of these internships? 
He said, yeah, okay, I'll pray about it. Now, that can be dangerous when you say, I'm going to pray about it. Because it could totally redirect your life. But that's what happened. A pastor planted the idea in his head, would you pray about it? And he started praying about it, and God directed his life, and God has written his story, Jonathan and Sarah's story, in an incredible manner so that they're now long-term committed disciple-makers in a Muslim country. And God did it. But it took a pastor to plant the idea in his head. So, there's an imbalance. All right, that's a great harvest. Let's move on quickly to the great request. Notice the biblical prayer request, please. This biblical prayer request in verse number 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here is a biblical prayer request to be obeyed. And let me show you why it's necessary. Here's a distribution of the Protestant missionaries in the major religious blocks, countries of the world. Now, this is insightful. 73% among nominal Christian nations. We send of Protestant missionaries, and those that compile these numbers just get statistics from all of the denomination mission agencies, okay? 73% of American Protestant missionaries go to nominal Christian nations like Philippines, like Brazil, like Mexico, and this may surprise you, but 92% of the Mexican population self-identify as Christian. 92%. And that's higher than in the U.S. In the U.S., it's 69% self-identify as Christians. We're getting increasingly secular in the United States. But 92% of the Mexican population self-identify as Christian. Now, we know that's because of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. And 90, of those 92% of the Mexican population are dear neighbors to the South who self-identify as Christians have a crucifix on the wall of their house with Jesus still on the cross. But you know what? They know who He is. They know He's the Son of God. And they know what He did. He died on the cross for sins. They're just not taught how to appropriate His death and burial and resurrection for themselves because they've been taught they have to merit righteousness or gain their own righteousness enough to get into heaven by praying the Hail Marys with the prayer beads, by going to Mass, by doing pilgrimages, by going to confession. They're taught they have to do all of that to earn righteousness before a holy God. But they know who Jesus is and they know He died on the cross. And there are many countries like that, as I said, the Philippines, Brazil, where there's a large percentage of the population who know who Jesus is. 73%. Look at this. We send 6% of American missionaries to Muslim countries. There are 45-plus Muslim-majority countries on the planet. 45-plus. And we only send 6% of our missionaries to 45-plus Muslim countries that have 1.8 billion people. And in these Muslim countries, they don't know who Jesus is because Islam teaches them that Jesus is not the Son of God. They will argue with you on that. They'll say, no, he's an esteemed prophet like Adam and Abraham and David, and Muhammad was the final esteemed prophet, but they do not believe Jesus is the Son of God. And number two, Islam teaches he didn't die on the cross. 
Did you hear that? We're coming up on Holy Week this week. Good Friday commemorates Jesus' death on the cross. Islam teaches he did not die on the cross. It would be blasphemous for an esteemed prophet to die on the cross. And they think Judas was substituted in his place at the last minute. So in these 6% Muslim countries, we send 6% of missionaries to Muslim countries who don't even know who Jesus is. So there's an imbalance. So here's the biblical prayer request for more gospel workers, for more goers. Now stay with me on this, please. It's a priority of Jesus to be obeyed. And yet, it's a pattern we often overlook. When I was a pastor in Georgia for many years, I presided over many, many prayer meetings. Pray for Mrs. Smith. She just lost her husband. He passed away. She's in sorrow. Pray for the Jones family. Mr. Jones is in the hospital Pray for the Morgan family. Mr. Morgan has lost his job and he needs employment. And those are legitimate things to pray for. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens, Ephesians 6 tells us, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But guess what? I never remember in 25 years somebody raising their hand and saying, can we please pray for more laborers for the harvest? And this is something Jesus told us to pray. In fact, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's even in red. It's directly from the lips of Jesus. He told us to pray for more workers. But it's a pattern we often overlook. This needs to be a regular prayer request in our local churches who value the harvest as God values the harvest. God, would you send more goers? Would you raise up more young people? And notice the biblical practice, please, if you would. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. I love this right here. Founded on a deep sense of need. The Greek word deomai. The ESV says, pray earnestly. The New American Standard says, plead. Pray earnestly. Plead for more workers. It's something that American churches don't do much of. I mean, we're praying for everything else under the sun, but we're not praying for more goers to go into the harvest. My home church, where I'm not there very often, in Greer, South Carolina, um, oftentimes when I am there, it's in the middle of the week for a midweek uh, prayer meeting, but I asked them, we have a prayer sheet that we print up, hand out every week. I said, could you put on there as a regular standing prayer request, pray for more laborers, more goers for the harvest, and they started doing that. But I'm in church after church after church where this prayer request is not even on their radar. And yet Jesus told us to pray it. Not only is it founded on a deep sense of need because more than two billion haven't even heard of Jesus, the next word, it says that He would send out laborers. It's ekbalo, which means to thrust out more Gospel workers. It's asking God to get us out of our comfort zone, thrust us out into the harvest. And you know why that is? I mean, we see it in the Bible. When Jesus called Moses, thrusting us out, Moses said, God, I can't do this. He wanted him to be the spokesman to the most powerful ruler on the earth, Pharaoh. And Moses said, No, I can't do it. I'm a man of slow speech. God called Isaiah to be a prophet to Israel. And Isaiah said, no, I can't do it. I'm a man of unclean lips. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. And you know what Jeremiah said? I'm but a youth. I'm too young. It's human nature to make excuses. And 
God has to thrust us out of our comfort zones because we don't like risk. And God's looking for workers to go to the hard places and then He wants every one of us who are redeemed children of God to be goers, workers in our own sphere of influence. I think of a lady 75 years of age named Mrs. Penn in the Philippines. Mrs. Penn lived in a village, didn't know Jesus. Her daughter knew there was no employment opportunities in her village, so she immigrated to Singapore. In Singapore, a co-worker invited her to church, and she heard the gospel, and she got saved. She was in her 30s. So next time she goes back to the Philippines, to the village where her mom lives, she shared the gospel with her mom. Her mom's 35 years of age. Her mom is converted. Her mom gets saved. And she is so thrilled. She's an illiterate woman. Can't read. She wants to go to everybody in her village and tell them about Jesus. So she memorized two verses. She memorized John 3.16 and she memorized John 14.2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And she went to every village, every house in her village and told them what Jesus had done for her. About six months later, her daughter's back in Singapore and the church where her daughter attends, the pastor gets a phone call from this village in the Philippines and says, hey, we're the village where so-and-so, they mentioned the daughter's name, her mom lives in our village, and we've got 40 people that are saved now. Can we have a church now in our village? All because of one senior saint who was illiterate, was serious about telling others about Jesus, being a worker in the harvest. And you know what? We also ought to pray, Lord, raise up from our own young people in our church to send them to the hard places. We want to be an Acts 13 Antioch church that sent out Barnabas and Saul. Make us a sending church like the Antioch church was. So let's look lastly at our great God and we're finished. We've seen the great harvest. We've seen the great request. Notice our great God. Uh, oh, by the way, in this praying, I mentioned this at Sunday school. We have a 31-day prayer calendar. You can pick it up on the table out there. You can also download it to your smartphone and have it on here. But these are the nations that have the least access to the gospel, have the dead zones. We're asking for people to pray for one country a day. It takes less than 60 seconds. Two requests. One, for more goers to go, like this passage says. And number two, grace for suffering Christians, persecuted Christians. Hebrews 13.3 tells us to pray for suffering believers. Remember the prisoners. And so to name one country before the throne of grace each day, those two requests, takes less than a minute a day. Now, this is entry-level intercession, okay? You can pray more if you want. But just to get God's people to have on our hearts what's on His heart, if we're going to value the harvest, to pray for one country a day. In fact, today is country number 10, Tunisia, right here in North Africa, 99% Muslim. And they need more workers with the gospel, more goers and grace for suffering Christians. And when families do it, the kids get excited. I've had parents say to me, John, you were in our church several years ago. You introduced this 31-day prayer calendar in our church when you came. We started using it as a family each day at breakfast. And our, if we forget, our kids keep us on track with it. And guess what? Your kids learn geography in the process. So that's an added benefit. But praying for God to send more workers and to give special grace to suffering Christians. 
So here's our great God, the Lord of the harvest. God's name teaches his character. They teach us who he is. In the Old Testament, El Elyon is the most high God. He's greater than the 330 million gods of Hinduism. He's greater than Allah of Islam. He's the most high God. No God is superior to our God. In the New Testament, the title Christ speaks of his three offices as the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king. And our great God, this name highlights God's priority. And I hope you're beginning to see this morning what God's priority is. It's the harvest. It's so important, He incorporated it into one of His names. And it shows us two things from this text about God valuing the harvest. First is His sovereignty. He's in control of the harvest. Notice, please, at the end of verse 38, that He would send out laborers into His harvest. It's His harvest, not our harvest. It's His and he's in control of it. He's the one sending. Acts fifteen fourteen tells us he's calling out a people for his name. And he sends out the workers, the goers into his harvest, but also a sympathy. He cares for the harvest. Verse 36, we saw that he felt compassion. He had compassion for hurting people. God loves souls of darkness. God yearns for them to come to Him. And you can tell a non-Christian, God loves you. He wants you in His family. So what's needed for us to value the harvest like God values it? Well, first, would you notice, please, we need a Godward focus. Focusing on His glory as the only God worthy of worship. God's fame, God's character, God's glory. And then His great grace to us shown on the cross. I do hope you'll spend some time meditating on the cross this week before our glorious Easter Sunday next Sunday. And think about even on Friday, 9 o'clock, Jesus was nailed to the cross Friday morning. 12 noon was when darkness covered the earth. And for three long hours, Jesus was separated from His Father. God estranged from God. He did that for you and me. And at the end of the three hours, at three o'clock, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He couldn't call him father because he was separated from God because of your sin and my sin. He could only call him God. He couldn't call him father. And finally, he said it is finished and he dismissed his spirit into the hands of the father and he was buried. Think about that this next week. You see, you know what the problem is with amazing grace? R.C. Sproul used to say this. The problem with amazing grace is it's not too amazing to us anymore. We take it for granted. We assume God has to give us grace because didn't he say in the Bible he would give us grace? In fact, we just sang this morning, marvelous grace, grace greater than all of our sin. And we take it for granted There's another old song that says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Amazed. And wonder how He could love me? A sinner condemned unclean? You know, God loves Vladimir Putin. And He would forgive him of his sins and convert him if he would repent and turn to Jesus. You see, He could love a barbarian like that who's bobbing women and children and killing people, civilians, right and left. God could love somebody. Yeah, He loves somebody like that. But we ought to be amazed that He loves you and me. And so, His great grace shown to us on the cross. Andrew Murray, the South African 
pastor missionary said, enthusiasm for the kingdom is missing because there's so little enthusiasm for the king. See, if we're not excited about Jesus, we're not going to be excited about his kingdom. So who's God looking for as we close? If we're going to value what God wants us to value, three characteristics of people. We saw a Godward focus, now an others focus. He's looking for intercessors who will pray for more goers into the harvest. And my challenge to you this morning, would you start praying for one country a day, for more goers to go to these places that are gospel dead zones? So he's looking for intercessors. He's looking for volunteers who will share the gospel with hurting people around you. You and I all have hurting people around us. Fleeced. Sheep without a shepherd. God's looking for volunteers. He'll say, Lord, I'll share them. In fact, you say, God, who can I think of in the next 30 days that you'll give me grace to take a risk and step outside my comfort zone and just bring up a gospel conversation with somebody I already know and somebody I'm already familiar with and I just say something like, hey, have I ever told you about the most important relationship in my life? And they say, you mean with your spouse? No, my relationship with Jesus. And then you proceed to tell them what it was like before you were converted, how you had no peace, no joy. You were afraid of where you were going when you died. You had the guilt of your sin. And then somebody told you about Jesus, how he loved you enough to come to earth and die in your place and satisfy God's wrath and pay your sin debt in full through His death, burial, and resurrection and how you repented of your sins. You ask God to forgive you for being the boss of your life because that's our basic problem. We all want to be the boss. And you ask Christ to wash away your sins and your life was changed. And now you have a guarantee of a home in heaven. Now you have genuine peace and now you have the removal of the guilt of your sin. And you just, you're not telling them you, you, you. You're telling them what Jesus has done for you. And you unleash the gospel in their lives for the Holy Spirit to work. We don't convert people. It's not our job to convert people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're just the messengers We're just, hey, did you get the passage that was read this morning from Romans 10 that Chris read? How beautiful are the feet. You have beautiful feet? Say, no, mine aren't too pretty. Listen, if you tell people about Jesus, you've got beautiful feet in God's eyes. How beautiful are the feet of those that share the good news. You say, well, I don't like the shape of my feet. Don't worry about all of that. If you tell people about Jesus, God says your feet are beautiful. We're the messengers. And be willing to be a goer to the hard places. So God's looking for intercessors, volunteers, and finally investors who will trust God by faith to give more for global missions. My wife's heard me preach this many times, and she got convicted and went home and had a yard sale. She got all this junk out of the attic and out of closets and stuff we haven't used in years and had a yard sale and sold it all. Got about $900 that she gave to global missions. Money she didn't have beforehand, but here was all this stuff we weren't using, so she had a yard sale to have more to give to global missions. When we stand before Jesus... We're not going to think, you know, I wish I'd have had more recreational equipment back down there on earth. We're going to be looking at things in light of eternity and the fame and the glory of Jesus. So, 
Do you see why God values the harvest for His fame and glory? And He's looking for that ultimate fulfillment in the marriage supper of the Lamb, as Joseph read about earlier, where He presents a bride composed of people out of every tribal group, every language group, and every nation to His Son, Jesus. And God the Father is looking forward to that with great anticipation. So are you involved in some kind of gospel ministry to make disciples right here in Portland, in Beaverton? Will you start praying for more goers? Because there's no limit to what a church can accomplish when it's focused on worshiping God's glory and that drives us into the harvest fields. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being slow to learn and to see things that You plainly told us in Your Word about praying for more goers. I pray, Father, that You would rekindle in us a fresh amazement of Your grace, how You could love us as sinners condemned unclean. And thank You for Jesus. Not only did He die in our place and purchase our redemption, but He exhibited what a good shepherd is who has compassion for hurting people and people that don't have a shepherd. Lord, help us to make it a priority to introduce people to the shepherd, the good shepherd. Work in our hearts, we pray. Thank You for loving us. In Jesus' name, Amen.